0: Queer Money Bingo is coming live to Denver, Colorado on Thursday, June 13th at the Downtown Capital One Cafe. To sign up for your door prizes, pride sunglasses, free coffee, more swag, fun, and games, go to queermoneypodcast.com forward
1: slash tour. I'm a butterfly psychologist and my husband's a stay-at-home astronaut, and our budget for a new home is $1.7 million. We all laugh at that meme, right? But we all know it only happens on HGTV. In the real world, couples need to be more financially stable to buy a home of any price and ideally be out to each other about their individual financial lives. On this Queer Money, we're talking about the five steps couples should take before buying a home. Buying a home is a big transaction, both personally and financially. That's why couples should complete these five steps before setting foot in a prospective home. So let's get started. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere, so banking fits into your life, not the other way around. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money.
0: So buying a home is one of the biggest financial decisions most of us make in life, and very often queer people make that decision independently because many of us aren't necessarily with a partner. But what we're covering today is how can couples buy a home together, whether they already have their own home independently or this will be their first purchase of a home altogether. So we have five, maybe six tips that we're going to share about how to proceed with such a big purchase and to make sure that you don't regret it afterwards. David and I believe that one of the best decisions that we made in our lives together was the fact that we bought a home that was right size for us and that was only one and a half times our income at the time that we made the purchase. And we'll elaborate more on that here soon. But David, you want to go ahead and get us started here with uh, the first of our five tips?
1: Right. Well, so first of all, I think that the primary reason why we're providing these tips is a lot of times the desire to buy a home, move in together can be somewhat impulsive right? We see somebody else got a new home, or we are out in a neighborhood and we see a home for sale that we like, maybe we've seen it before. Or maybe as a couple, our relationship is finally getting to that point where we see ourselves being together long term. So we want to make this decision to combine our households and maybe downsize to a degree, because as you mentioned, in many cases, a lot of LGBT couples have been living separately, but maybe maintaining their own home, or maybe they have been living with roommates and they're tired with that <laughs> they're ready to actually make it permanent uh so this is a big decision and it's not just big emotionally but it's very big financially so we want to talk about these potential five steps here that you really should take because not only will they help make the decision process a little bit easier yeah it's going to take some work but it's going to make the decision process easier it will also, in the end, in many cases, save you thousands, if not tens, or in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, And, you know, that's kind of our point behind queer money oftentimes is we want to give these kind of money tips because our community struggles enough with lots of other things. Financial shouldn't be one of those. So let's get on this five steps here so that as you make these decisions, you'll see how they can really in in the end, uh, make it easier for you financially. Exactly. So our first one here is to confirm your credit scores and improve if needed. Now, some of you may say, What the heck? Who cares? (laughs) Why does it even matter? Well, first of all, I'm going to say this. If your credit score is in the bad or poor range, you shouldn't even be thinking about purchasing a home. And the reason we say that is because if your credit score is pretty much below about a 700, then you have some financial work to do first to prove to lenders that you're actually a good Risk to take. And the reason why you want to do that is because it's going to lower your interest rate. And for that reason alone, you are going to save a shitload of money. Uh, There are too many people who go out there, and we saw this during the financial crisis, that went out there and they purchased homes with subprime rates where they were getting charged 7, 8, 9, 10% as an interest rate. And that's how they rolled these into products that ended up causing the financial crisis. And it's that risk that you really want to eliminate. You want to prove that you can't actually make those payments, those 360 payments for the next 30 years.
0: Exactly. And, you know, I think it's important to note here that you might be able to, even though you might have a non-optimal credit score, you might be able to get a loan for your mortgage. But just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. And I think it's important for us to do our part as individuals to not let another financial crisis like 2008 happen again. So it might behoove you to, if you don't have an optimal credit score, to self-select out of purchasing home until you can Get your credit score improved. And we do have some, some tips that we're going to share today to improve your credit score.
1: Right. So one of the things you want to do is you want to go to maybe one of your current financial institutions. Many banks or credit card companies will provide you with your credit score. So I know that on a couple of the websites that I've been on, you can just do a quick search or some of them on that very first page, they will give you what your FICO score is. So you can do a quick check of what your credit score is. The other thing is if you're finding that your institution doesn't have those, the primary reason that you might want to check with your bank or with a bank is because they're most likely going to have the credit score that would be used for lending when it comes to getting a home loan you know some of the other credit scores that are out there the non-fico scores are not necessarily the ones that are going to be used predominantly when getting a home loan you're going to want to use that fico score but there are some other great places Uh, i think it's the website nav.com has a list of 150 places that you can get your credit score for free we'll link to that in the show notes but the whole idea here is you want to really kind of check in are you In a financially stable situation, uh, when it comes to your credit score to be able to qualify for a loan, or will it cost you a lot of money? And if you're having problems, if you feel like you need to do something to improve your credit score or to fix some mistakes that you've made in the past, download the credit score repair checklist that we have. You can get that at debtfreeguys.com forward slash 159. That's a tool that we created with just a list of things that you can do to help improve your credit score. Some other suggestions might be going to freecreditreport.com where you can get your credit score for free. Another one that John and I recently have found out that we like is the Experian Boost product. Now, Experian offers this as a free way for you to, in a sense, boost your FICO score with Experian, which is one of the ones that plays into what your overall FICO score is. You can find that at experian.com forward slash debt free guys, but we'll link to that in the show notes as well. The thing I love about this tool... Is that if you have been consistently paying your phone bill or any of your utilities with your bank, they allow you to basically add that to your credit history file, which Other institutions wouldn't necessarily have access to, but you would give this to Experian. And then it can take you from what is oftentimes referred to as a thin credit file where you don't have a whole lot of history, or maybe you've made some mistakes in the past and you need to prove that you actually are paying your bills on time. This can actually improve your credit score. And I think one of the individuals in the Queer Money group and one of the individuals in the credit credit card card payoff group. group... One, I think one of them increased their score by 39 points. And the other one, I think it was by 38 or 36 points. So it can have a big impact. I know one person went from being in the poor category to being good.
0: Exactly. So, you know, to whatever extent you can improve your credit score before you apply for a mortgage or a home loan, definitely do so. You know, if you're in the excellent category, you probably don't need to do any more work. But if you're in anything less than excellent, especially if you're on the lower end of the spectrum, do what you can to try to improve your credit score because all it can do is lower your interest rate and make the cost of your loan cheaper over a lifetime. And we recommend this as the first step to do because sometimes acquiring this information and pulling all of it can take some time, especially if you need to look through your credit reports and uh, make any claims against your credit report to help improve your file. That can take some time as well, especially for it to actually reflect in the numbers. So the sooner you start this, the better. This might even be something you want to start doing, even if you're only in the ideation phase of thinking about buying a home together with your partner. So number two, our second recommendation is to decide on your must-haves what is most important to you i think this is, requires a caveat here that i think many people can get caught up in in that they think that everything is the most important thing <laughs> and when that's simply not possible for most people so that you get the best roi for your investment figure out what features and benefits are most important to you and what are least important to you that'll provide you with some focus and help you stay within the price range that you can afford so some things to consider where is it that you want to live Obviously, location, location, location is key, but what is optimal for you? What's most important to you? Depending on your requirements, if living in center city of your favorite state is the most important thing to you, that might have to be the only thing for you, because some cities are super expensive. If you have some leeway with that, great. Then you might want to consider what type of house is important to you. I know David and I, our long-term goal is to have a mid-century modern home. Well, there are inherent costs with that relative to maybe, say a standard home. So consider that. Then also consider the size and the amenities, uh, the type of condition you want to move into. Are you okay with buying a fixer-upper? Do you have the time and the interest and the money to be able to fix a place up? Or do you sort of need a move-in ready kind of place? Uh, are you not handy? I personally am not handy. So, no, he's it's, a lot not. <laughs> of, so it's a lot of work for David. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> And this kind of pulls me back to my first point. When we were shopping for our first condo together, we had a lot of our friends telling us that we could buy 3,000 square foot homes. And people were telling us that we could buy these multi hundreds of thousand dollar homes. And we had just coming out of our, paying off our credit card debt, Prior to the financial crisis, we knew we didn't want to be house poor. We knew that having a gigantic home wasn't our most important value. We wanted to be able to travel more, and we knew that the more expensive our home was going to be, the less we were going to be able to travel. The more expensive our home was going to be, the less we could save for retirement. We made the very conscious decision, despite our real estate agent's best wishes, to only buy a condo that was a thousand square feet and a home that was only at the time one and a half times our annual income, but at the end of the day, that helped us weather the financial crisis without having too much stress. Uh, We were only underwater, I think, a maximum of $15,000 for a couple of years. But then shortly after the crisis, we were completely out of being underwater, right? (laughs) In the black. And we weren't stressed as much as many of our friends and family were when they were had just recently bought their home and were trying to pay off their home. So consider what those must-haves are and try to get on the same page to the extent that you can with your partner to help you provide some focus and stay within the parameters that are are most conducive to you.
1: Right. You know, I think about that whole idea of must-haves and we are constantly barraged with these images of whether it's on Pinterest or Instagram or on TV, you know, a lot of the TV shows that we watch, everyone seems to want and have these glamorous Hollywood style homes, right? It's (laughs) like everything about your home is perfect. And it's very rare that your first home is going to be that perfect home. I looked up before we were uh, recording this that the average first-time home buyer spends 11 and a half years in their first home. Now, obviously, styles change, things change, families grow, <laughs> maybe you have your fur babies during that time period. So a lot of things will happen to you in, the first t- in that time period buying that first home. But that doesn't mean that that has to be a permanent home. So one of the things I I often look at is a lot of the areas in these major, you might call gay cities or LGBTQ cities, where enclaves of LGBT people live, if you go back to maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you look at what those neighborhoods were like, they were not the super desirable, high-end, first-class neighborhoods that they are today. The reason why they are now is because we all moved in and we gentrified and they became those kinds of neighborhoods. So if you're comfortable and you can stomach it, (laughs) so to speak, it may be of benefit to you to go to a city that is, or or a part of the city that is a little bit smaller, one that is maybe a neighborhood that has that upside potential to it. Especially if you aren't thinking about staying in it long term, then you can sell it for more than what you purchased it for.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember what episode it was, but uh, we had Mindy Jensen from Bigger Pockets on queer money. And she mentioned the idea of when you buy your first home, or you buy an investment property, sort of look for the neighborhoods or the sub-neighborhoods that are within the path of progress. You don't want to buy into a neighborhood that's already growing or already increasing in value, but you can kind of see a path of progress where there's upside potential. And then you can reap the rewards over those 10 or 11 years before between the time that you buy and you decide to sell your first home together.
1: And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's Checking and Savings Accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Right. And you know, this all kind of plays into our point number three here, and that's review your budget. So when you look at your must-haves, you also have to look at your budget. Because if I were to go back and say, I'm going to look at my must-haves, well, my must-have has to be a mid-century modern home in Palm Springs. Well, I don't have... $1.5, $2 One and a half, two million $2 million to drop on a home right now. You so don't? maybe that's not a must-have. I think you lied to me. <laughs> right. So maybe your, your must-haves also have to depend on what your budget is. And a couple of things to keep in mind on your budget is look at what you're spending today. And keep in mind all of the additional expenses that you're going to have because of purchasing. If you don't own right now, if you're renting, you remember you're going to have to start paying things like real estate taxes, homeowners insurance, annual upkeep, maintenance costs, maybe a homeowners association fee, all of those kinds of things. So let's just say today you or you and your partner are living in a place and you're paying $1,800 a month. Well, $1,800 a month in rent does not translate into an $1,800 mortgage payment. You know, a couple of things here to keep in mind is, you know, it really depends on what state you live in, but some states have significantly high real estate taxes. So you definitely want to take these into consideration. It's also a good suggestion, and most real estate agents will tell you this that it's smart to set aside about 1% to 2% of the annual value of your home for maintenance and upkeep I mean, none of us want to watch our home, our investment in our home go to pot because we don't have the money. I mean, we've all seen these places, right? These homes on the streets where it's the one that looks shabby or literally looks like a pig pen because individuals aren't maintaining it. And oftentimes the reason is because they just don't have the money because they maybe purchased more home than they should have. You drive through some of these really nice neighborhoods and you see these homes and you're like, why isn't that person taking care of their home? Because they're broke. They don't have enough money to take care of their home. So when you think about that, one to two percent. So let's just say you're buying a home that is three hundred thousand uh, dollars. So that's a moderately priced home in the U.S. Uh, depending on what city you're living in, but a three hundred thousand dollar house. That means that you're going to have anywhere from three. You're going to have to set aside anywhere from three to six thousand dollars a year to take care of your home. So that means anywhere from an additional $250 to $500 a month that you need to be setting aside. Now that's something you need to factor into your budget as to whether you can afford it. So we go back to that $1,800 a month in rent. Well, if you need to set aside an additional $250 to $500 for maintenance costs, well, $1,800, you're either going to add the $250 to $500 or you're going to have to subtract that from the $1,800 if $1,800 is your upper max then you're looking at maybe being able to purchase something that's um, maybe in the 13 to 1550 range when it comes to purchasing a place. So you got to keep that in mind and as John mentioned, one of the Benefits that was so important for us is we didn't want to become house poor We wanted to have money so we could still go out with our friends so that we could still take some vacations That we could still work towards our financial goals. So it's important to factor in what your other financial goals are
0: Absolutely, and then I want to I want to highlight an important point here about homeowners associations. David and I Eventually sold our condo because our homeowner association was a complete mess most of the people—that's an understatement. <laughs> most of the people in the building thought that the homeowners association should just take care of everything. Many people didn't understand that they were the homeowners association and that they were funding whatever maintenance was required in that homeowners or in our condo. And so there was a small contingency of people who were investing a lot of time and paying equal amount in homeowners dues to try to maintain or upgrade the value or quality of the home. But most people were sort of detractors. And I think a lot of people believe that simply because they're paying fees that everything should just be taken care of for them or they don't understand exactly who's maintaining the building when they're paying for a homeowner's association. So understand what your homeowner's association fees include, what they're covering, and understand how that's being funded so that you can make sure that you're a valuable contributor to that homeowner's association and not a detractor. Ultimately, our building had too many detractors and that was ultimately why we left. Turned out to be a good thing for us, (laughs) but um, that's just something to keep in mind. Then that brings me to our fourth point. And this we got, before we actually recorded this, we went out and we, talked with some real estate agents. We don't just do these podcasts by the flying <laughs> on the seat of our pants. Uh, we actually do do some research. And one of the most consistent pieces of feedback that we got from our real estate friends and contacts was that they typically prefer to only work with people who have already gotten a good faith estimate from a lender or a lender broker. And that's because they only want to work with people who are really serious about buying a home. It might be fun for you to go window shopping and looking at real estate property, but we have to keep in mind that for the agents who we're working with, this is their job. They're looking to make commission. It's how they feed their family and how they maintain their quality of life. So unless you've already disclosed to someone that you're just doing this for fun and that they're okay with that, um, you definitely want to get a good faith estimate before engaging with a real estate agent. They also recommend avoiding online quotes because they're not typically firm quotes. They may be completely off and you don't want to go looking for homes that you can't actually afford your uh, real estate agent that you might be working with probably has a Rolodex of uh, lenders or lender brokers that they can connect you with. And that's oftentimes a very good thing to connect with the people that have already worked together because very often they're all sort of working on the same page. They know how everybody works together and they can very often get you some great rates and put you uh, in the right homes. Right. And I think one
1: of the other great points about working with a lender that has already or is familiar with your real estate agent is they'll understand what kinds of properties you may be looking at. Oftentimes, agents are looking or specialize in particular areas or particular styles of homes. The other important thing is when you sit down and you start talking with that lender, if they don't ask you about other expenses that you have in your life If they're only talking to you about the value of the property and how much it's going to cost when it comes to your mortgage, and they don't include some of these other things like taxes, homeowners insurance, maintenance costs, homeowners association, or the fact that maybe you purchased a car last year and you have a $600 a month car payment, or maybe you are paying alimony, they need to take into consideration all of these other expenses that you have in your life, or you're going to end up like the stories of individuals during the financial crisis. Kids who were graduating from college with a $40,000 salary, but being given a $400,000 loan, not understanding that they were also paying $1,200 a month in student loan costs. So there's a lot of scenarios here where things could go terribly wrong if you're not working with the right lender or broker.
0: Right. And I think that that kind of uh, reiterates what we said earlier. You want to look at your entire financial picture in totality. You buying a home with your partner is just one slice, maybe a very large slice, but it's just one slice of your entire financial picture. You want to make sure you consider everything in totality so that you don't end up robbing from Peter to pay Paul or overextending yourself in something that you can't afford. Because ultimately, if you get into a home that you can't afford, we already know that financial stress is one of the leading causes of divorce or breakups. If you overextend yourself by buying a home that you can't afford, you're kind of setting your your relationship up for failure, as well as setting up your financial future up for failure. And that's exactly what we're trying to mitigate here. Yeah. So our
1: point number five here, handle legal matters up front. (laughs) So (laughs) what is your ownership going to look like? Draw up and sign these co-ownership contracts, the agreements beforehand. What kind of title is your property going to have? If one of you is going to be purchasing this, make it a sole ownership. You are the only one who is owning that particular property. Make your spouse or your partner the beneficiary so that something happens to you, then they will get the property. Or if you're comfortable, make it a, a joint tenant so that both of you are owners on the property. There's also, in some states, tenants in common. You know, you want to check what's going on with your state laws. This is something that your real estate agent can also help you with, is which kind of ownership contract is appropriate for your relationship. Then you don't have to worry about finding out maybe five years, ten years down the line that maybe you've set up something incorrectly. So draw up those contracts first. If your agent, if they themselves cannot help you with that, they're going to be able to point you to probably some legal attorney attorneys or some legal advice that would help you understand which is the best choice for you.
0: Exactly. And then our bonus recommendation. So I guess technically it's number six, but we like to work in odd numbers (laughs) on this podcast. But our bonus recommendation is to save up a 20% down payment plus any savings that you might want to include for immediate improvements or upgrades in your home. Very often, you move into a home and you want to make some changes initially. Well, be prepared to try to do that with cash as opposed to trying to do that with credit. The reason why we recommend trying to have the 20% down payment, even though it seems so far out of reach for most people, is that if you don't have that 20% down payment upfront in cash, then you're going to have to pay what's called private mortgage insurance. That's an extra level of insurance that you're going to have to be able to provide to help mitigate the risk that your lender is taking on to loan, give you a loan technically outside of your reach. And you don't want to have to incur more costs than you do. Buying a home is already going to be one of the most expensive things that you do in your life. And you want to try to reduce that expense as much as you can so that you can put that money towards other financial goals to achieve your long-term financial security. So to the extent that you can, save at least 20% down payment based off of the purchase price of your home to help mitigate that cost and then incorporate in the whatever initial upgrades or any initial improvements you're going to want to make to your home when or before you move into your home.
1: You know, one of the great ways to do that, to have that down payment in place is to start living your life right now as if you were making that mortgage payment. It's probably going to be larger than your rent. So start making that additional payment so that you're starting to build that down payment, that cushion that's there. John mentioned that when we had purchased our home, we didn't do this. We really, really wish that we had. And that's part of the reason why during the financial crisis, we were upside down, that we owed more on our home than what it was worth was because we didn't save for that down payment. And there were lots of individuals that did that. And then when something happened, fortunately for us, we didn't lose our jobs. But if something were to happen, then you don't have to give up your home. You know, And the reason why so many people just gave up their homes, stopped paying on them, and went into default was simply because they couldn't sell it for what they owed on it and it was easier for them to just let it go and that's a really bad mark on your credit history as well as potentially you can do in the future when it comes to financing or borrowing money So again, we want you to kickstart this whole process off with that very first item, and that's to check your credit score. And if you already know or you think you might need some help repairing your credit, get that credit score repair checklist at debtfreeguys.com forward slash 159.
0: Thank you very much. And we will talk with you next week.
1: And there you have it. Five, maybe six steps for you to take to be ready to buy a home with the love of your life. We don't advise that couples struggle with analysis paralysis, but don't make such a big decision without crossing some T's and dotting some I's. You want to ensure that your next step is one that you love to take rather than one that will cause you financial troubles. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. To learn more about how our sponsor, Capital One, is reimagining their local spaces and experiences to have banking better fit your life, Visit www.capitalone.com and
0: follow them on social at Capital One Cafe. If you or someone you know is in or near Denver on Thursday, June 13th, go to queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour to reserve a spot to win amazing swag, including our very popular fried sunglasses, free coffee, and of course, an hour of Queer Money Bingo hosted by yours truly. That's queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour.